Welcome to Black and Blue Live, everybody. How you guys doing out there? What's going on, Welcome, Lizzie? Sam. Hey, hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent, excellent, excellent. How's your Sunday shaping out, young lady? Ooh, family, hanging out, a few other right, mental right. issues, but doing good. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. We're going to roll with this. Yes, yes, yes. Today's topic is going to be a good one. We got some real good yes. guests on here today. So, you know, let's, let's get into that here in a minute. First, I want to let everybody know, please, thank you. Thank you for joining us here today on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, wherever you at. Tell your friends, tell your family, comment, everything. We love you. And uh, we'll get this conversation popping today. You know what I mean? Let's make it Absolutely. happen, Kevin. Yes, yes, indeed. So uh, let me introduce our guest, our first guest here. She is a founder. She's the founder of uh, 1211 Partners. That is a survivor-led nonprofit focused on... Uh, supporting sex trafficking survivors. Everybody, please help us welcome in Kathy McGibbon-Givens. Hello, Ms. Kathy. Good evening. Good evening. So Thank glad to be here. Joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We appreciate you. Our next guest here, she is a law enforcement officer out in the great state of New Mexico. She is assigned to a human trafficking task force. Everybody, please help us welcome in Deanna Young. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on the Hello. show. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I was telling her earlier, her background there is, is really bright. She looks like she in heaven. Right. Just, just <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> That. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all white and everything. Yeah. Thank right. you. We appreciate you. Appreciate you coming on. Our last guest here, she is a case manager with Journey Out. That is another nonprofit organization committed to helping victims of human and sex trafficking leave that lifestyle. Everyone, please help us welcome in Miss Tika Thornton. Hello, Miss Tika. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. All right. So thank you. Let's bring everybody on here. And thank you. Thank you. The applause, the applause, everybody, for our guests yes, here. Yes, <laughs> Thank you. So uh, today's, today's topic is, is, is a heavy one. Um, so we will keep it as respectful as we can, everybody out there. Your comments are welcome on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and Periscope. Please send those in, and we will get those out for our guests as well. Um, I know I introduced you guys already, but why don't you tell us one by one exactly a little bit more about yourself for our audience. Uh, we'll start with you, Kathy. Go ahead. Yeah, like you mentioned, um, my name is Kathy McGibbon-Gibbons, and I'm co-founder of 1211 Partners, which is a survivor-led organization, nonprofit organization to help support um, overcomers of trafficking. And so um, this is my life. This is what I've been called to ever since I got out. I just, I mean, this is just what I've been called to. So this is what I do. Um, aside from that, though, I do have a life outside of this, which is I'm a wife, a mom, and all that other stuff, a playwright, and um I just, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. All right. Thank you. We appreciate you. And uh, next up, uh, Ms. Deanna, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Deanna Young. Um, I'm a special agent with the New Mexico Attorney General's Office out here in, in New Mexico and Albuquerque. That's where our actual um, office is. 
Uh, I've been working in human trafficking for about three years. Before that, I was a deputy uh, with Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department. And I'm, like I said, I'm happy to be on the show today. All right. Thank you for joining us. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, Tika, tell everybody about yourself. I am a crisis response case manager for the organization Journey Out. And um, I basically work well, real close with law enforcement uh, in order to uh, assist them with the victims uh, so they can take care of the case. And as, uh, like my survivor sister said, um, I just, I'm very grateful that I can use my pain as in purpose uh, to, to help uh, the, the survivors and the victims of, of sex trafficking. And I am also a, a 90s hip hop head and a Star Wars lover. Yes. Yes. All right. I can, I can, I can relate to both of those. Yes, indeed. That's what I'm talking about. All right. Thank you, ladies, for joining us here today. Uh, we appreciate you. Appreciate so, you. So, um, obviously, this is new to some people and not others. Um, Special Agent Young, would you kind of explain to us in our audience what human trafficking is and give us somewhat of a definition of that? So my definition of human trafficking, as well as the state of New Mexico, it's a it's a modern day uh, form of modern day slavery. So that's exactly what it is. It's, it consists of someone benefiting from another person through force, fraud or coercion. Um, where someone's actually either labor trafficking or sex trafficking um, that we've seen a lot of. Um, so that's our definition of human trafficking. Miss Kathy and Miss Tika, would you like to add anything else to that or um, expound on any of that? Um, I mean, I guess I would just echo that. And in addition, I would, I love uh, the quote that Polaris uses is that it's really just stealing people's um, freedom for profit. And that's, I mean, that's legit what we're talking about. So that's what I would add. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tika, you wanted to speak out on that? Um, well, it's um, it has been one of the fastest growing industries, um, uh, illegal industries, because most people, well, the people that are in uh, a lot of criminal activities, they can only sell a drug or let's say a gun or property one time where they can sell someone over and over again without having to invest any money back into it. So um, it, it is, um, it, it's sad, but it has been come, become very lucrative for that underground um, world of uh, criminality. Yeah, yeah. And Kathy and Tika, you, you, I'm sorry, real quick. Um, you, you two were involved on the, on the sex trafficking side, but it, it, it involves a whole range of, of things in human trafficking. Um, can, can we talk about that a little bit real quick before we get into your individual stories? Um, you got labor, there's a whole myriad of things. Um, can we speak on that? Uh, probably, probably Deanna. Definitely, could... there's a, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Somebody, somebody jump in there. Go ahead, Tika. Uh, yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that come along or that are hand in hand with, with human trafficking. There's a lot of other, um, um, like violent crimes that come along with it. Um, drugs play a huge part, violence play a huge part. Um, and then there's some things that we don't really notice far as like the house sex trafficking and labor trafficking actually kind of intersects in, in some ways. 
Um, a lot of the clients that we work with here at Journey Out, um, when times were slow or when weather was bad, um, they started to get into selling drugs and or um, having them do credit cards or some type of fraud. Um, so we have seen that a lot of these people that have been um, that have been subjected to sex trafficking have also been subtracted uh, subjected to labor trafficking in some kind of way as well yeah yeah i can imagine i can imagine that and uh uh deanna how, how long have you been working in in the tra sex trafficking in the human trafficking field how, how long have you been doing that task force so i've been on the task force for three years now um working in human trafficking and sex trafficking yes What's the attorney general's role in, in that? So we're actually um, the clearinghouse. So all of our Polaris tips um, for human trafficking, they come through our office first. Um, and then they go to HSI, which is our Homeland Security office, as well as any other uh, part of our task force. So we actually see the tip first. If we're not in that area, because some of our tips happen four hours away from where I'm at, um, we send our task force over there. And we have a lot of labor trafficking that does happen along the, the border because that's where our, where our actual agricultural farms are at. Um, but here in Albuquerque, you see the girls that are um, in sex trafficking and that are walking the track. We also have a big transgender community um, that's now in, involved with the sex trafficking, with sex trafficking and um, they're being violated as well and kidnapped and, and raped and things like that and brought into that life. So that's what we've seen a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. And, uh, real quick, uh, I guess it doesn't have to be real quick, but, uh, Kathy, I see there on your title that you are a survivor of, of human trafficking. If you don't mind, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, one of the things I like to start off with just, uh, you know, how, how I got into it. One of the misconceptions is that, you know, we're looking for that big white van with the dark tinted windows and the scary cars that are gonna come and abduct people, right? Though that does happen, um, it's typically someone, victims are, are, are typically um, victimized by someone that they trust, right? Um, someone that they've built a relationship with, someone that they, um, at, at some point in time, so, you know, we're comfortable with. Um, and that's how it happened for me. So I was, uh, I came to Texas. I'm from Texas. I came into Texas um, as a teenager, you know, good home, good family, all that stuff, right? Good mom. Um, my mom was a single parent, but I mean, she was great. And so uh, I didn't have a lot of the the things that would leave me at risk, I would say, right? So the the one thing that was my vulnerability was like a fatherless home, but my upbringing was was sweet. It was great. Um, I met a mutual friend first year of college. Met a um, through a mutual friend. Met, met this this guy. Um, he was in a band. It was a group of guys, and these group of guys were, hey, like let's hang out and you know let's 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 chill and and kick it and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, I met these individuals through my friend who was an artist. She was in uh, the music industry. So she went to the talent show and this is how we got, you know, introduced to these guys. The guys were like, hey, bring your friends. Like we, we got all this going on and um, we want to kick it with you. And so she invited us. Literally, I didn't even meet the person first directly. This was like through a mutual friend. And so she invited us and um, we just started kicking it with them. These 
this guy band and my group of girlfriends and we just all started kicking it. And this lasted for about three to six months, I would say, of literally just hanging out. They were um, they were known artists in Houston, Texas um, and beyond. And so they were very popular. I grew up, my mom's Jamaican. So when I was growing up, it was like, hey, you under my roof, you go work or you go to school and that's just it. There's no such thing as partying and all that kind of stuff. So when I got these invitations for me, it was like, oh, like this is cool. Like I get to go backstage and we going in green rooms and all this kind of stuff. I'm getting in places that I never thought that I would get in. And so that's how it, it started for me, like just a, a, a great relationship. I'm not gonna lie, we were having fun. And, um, and so the invitation started to change slowly but surely. So like after about that six month mark, um, I started to get solo invitations. So the person who was like the head of the, the lead of the band, the leader of the band, he was like the most talented, you know, like you can always tell when someone's that guy, right? Like mm -hmm. all his friends are following him and all his, you know, he talks the most and he has the gift of gab and all of that, right? That right. person started giving me, um, attention and you know he was like hey you know why don't you come hang out with me not your friends this time but i just want to get to know you because it's something about you that's how the conversation started and um fast forward we started kicking it we started hanging out i started meeting this individual um by myself and literally i thought that you know before i knew it i was i thought that i was in some kind of relationship i really thought that he was like a boyfriend um missed all the red flags. I'm not going to say they weren't there. I just didn't see them because there's there's this image that someone, I uh, did a presentation one time or was at a presentation one time and there's this image of like a man holding out like a bunch of red flags, but then the individual that is seeing the, those red flags um, is interpreting those as red roses. So to the, it looks like mm. red roses when the man is literally saying, hey, danger, danger, right? That's kind of how it was for me. I wish I had that visual, but that's kind of how it was for me because I missed every red flag. It was just cool hanging out. And so um, so fast forward, this we're into like a year now, right? You see that white van didn't come pick me up. I'm like in it, in it with, with this individual that um, I'm thinking that I'm trusting, you know, I, I love him and oh my gosh, like I can't believe this is, this is um, for me. Um, and then towards the end of that year, that's when he, he dropped the plan. That's when he was like, Hey, you know, like I really, I'm about to, I'm about to start my business and I'm about to start this record label. And I really think that I want you to be a part of that. Like, it's just me and you against the world. And, you know, we're going to be rich and we're going to do this. And so the plan was that we were to leave Houston, Texas, and just go four hours away to Dallas, Texas for about three months to meet some investors listening to that story in hindsight is like okay come on but i didn't know anything about business i didn't know anything about music whatever he told me he told me and so um we went to we prepared to go to dallas i was a little hesitant because i'd never been away from my people from my actual friends and family for that long but by that time i was like he was my entire world so i had completely isolated myself from from my system and my moral compass was completely broken down at that point um, and so, yeah, anything that he said, I, I, I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to be our life. I'm going to go, we're going to make a family together and it's just going to be great. Um, mm -hmm. and literally the day that the night that I got to Dallas, that's when the literally a switch just flipped and Mr. Charming, Mr. Oh my gosh, he, he likes me. He loves me turned into a complete monster, just like that. Um, and there was mm -hmm. no time to process. 
there was no time to process this. It was an outer body experience. I was, he, you'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of the language later, but um, he had his bottom like quickly trade me on what to do and what I'm going to wear, taking pictures. It was like, it was nonstop. It was like, I had no time to figure out, okay, what, what is happening? There's no like, there's no curriculum for this. <laughs> like what happened? There's nobody's going to yeah. tell me what's going on. And so um, very quickly I ended up, um, that week that that first week that I was there, men just started coming to the room, I was just told to do what they say, yada, yada, yada. And then I was put out on the street, um, which is something that he promised he would never do. Because even as he was um, exploiting me inside this room, he promised, you know, like, well, I love you still. And that's why I'm like doing this to you. Or if he would abuse me, he'd pull me to the side, just like an abusive situation, pull me to the side and be like, I I'm only doing this for show, you know that, right? Because it's just me and you, we have to do this. And so but he promised, he's like, but I'll never ever put you like out with the other girls. I still didn't even know what that meant. Because all I knew is there were girls that didn't come back. And so um, you know, some crazy, I, I guess, because of the trauma bond, I really just thought that he was in it like for me still, um, when he put me out, that's when I realized that I was about to die. I was like, oh, this is, oh, this is real, real. Like, this is my life. Um, mm. And I just, every moment after that was just survival. Fast forward, made it out. Um, it's a crazy way how I made it out, how my exit happened, but it didn't, it didn't include law enforcement. It didn't include like a bunch of like SWAT and rescue and all that kind of stuff that we see on the TV. Um, it didn't include that for me. Um, it was just like, God, <laughs> honestly, it was just a moment, an opportunity that I saw um, and that I capitalized on as far as like just a small window of opportunity to make him think that, you know, I would never leave. And and I, I left and um, had my brother and my sister-in-law come pick me up. And, you know, the story goes on after that, because I say that um, Restoration is a lifelong process. So I would like to say that when upon that exit, like that night, I never looked back and changed my life forever. But that wasn't the case. I never went back to um, trafficking. Like I wasn't, I never went back to a pimp. I never went back to a trafficker. But it was really hard for me to get my life back. I was in them, yeah. you know, I was in some very, very unstable situations after that. It took me a while to heal. So that's yeah. where here I am today. And that's why I do what I do. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Just uh, before we ask uh, any other questions, Ms. Kathy, again, thank you. Um, you said uh, so many key things that I, I definitely want to tap into our viewers, and I'm sure everyone else here can tap in on that. Um, but one, the grooming process wasn't an overnight process like we see in Taken, right? So, um, and you had mentioned his bottom. Would you expound a little bit for those for those squares <laughs> who don't understand what a bottom is? Can you explain what a bottom is? Um, and then maybe give a little more detail on the grooming, because I know there are people watching who have family members and they don't understand why they won't come out or because you, you said I had a good I had a good foundation. But at some point there was a disconnect, um, whether he used that against you or whether he made you feel like you couldn't go home. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that, Antika, if you also want to jump in on that, too, to help our viewers really understand this, how ugly this process becomes, or the web, I should say the web, the entanglement. Absolutely. So um, we tried to kind of break that grooming process down, that process of seduction, however you want to call it. Um, and it started with, you know, it starts with number one, befriend. That's like the first step. And as you you know, recall from my story, it was someone that I trusted and I was hanging out with and he was my friend. He, I thought he was my friend. So stage one is befriend. Um, the second stage is 
alienation. Oh, I'm sorry, intoxication. So it wasn't drugs and alcohol for me, but my intoxication was that glamorous lifestyle because I wasn't, you know, going out in the clubs in high school and stuff like that. And I wasn't like this big, I didn't have a big party life. So when it was introduced to me, it was like, oh, like this is, this is, this is the deal, right? And so my intoxication was a glamorous lifestyle. And after intoxication, that's when they start to alienate you. So um, I was literally into it with my mom. I stayed with my mom at the time. By the end of that year, I wasn't living with my mom. I was living with a friend. So he was successful in like just, you know, tearing that relationship apart. And it would sound like um, just sowing seeds like, oh my gosh, you have a curfew? Like, that's, you're too old to have a curfew. Like, come on, you, you, this is, you should be on your own by now. Like mm. you should be further on. Um, and I did have, I, you know, after high school, that first year of college, I did have a child, right? And I, I don't, I never lead with that because once you lead with that, people are like, oh, well, that was, that was it. That was your vulnerability, teen, you know, young mom. But that wasn't my case because my mom was solid. Even though I had a child, I was in school, I was in college. Mm-hmm. My mom was like, I got, I got her. You go, you go have a career and be great. And then we'll figure this out. Um, so I didn't, that wasn't my lack. However, he did use that in my face and was like, don't you want to be like a better mom? Like, don't you want to take care of your, your own child and, and stuff like that. So, um, that was the alienation. Then it was isolation. So the friends that I was hanging out with and those solo invitations that started coming, made you know he, he was very successful in creating that divide between my support network my friends my the people that i was confiding in and talking to now i felt like all i could do is confide in him the only person that i could talk to is him right so then comes um so that was the um the isolation and then desensitized is that next step to where you're like he's brainwashed you so much or this person has brainwashed you so much that your all of your moral compass, what you've grown up with and what you know from right from wrong. He now it's like twisted. Now whatever up he is says down. is right is right. Yeah. 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 Whatever he says is and right down is right. Is up. And nothing else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so and then the last step is capitalization. And that is when they dropped the plan. Well that's when he, for me he dropped the plan and was like, man, we should start a business. And that was it and took off from there. Um, and so that was like the, the, those stages of the grooming process, the stages of seduction. And it takes a long time. But if you notice, he was very successful in breaking me down, taking away my identities mm-hmm. layer by layer. He stripped everything that I, was instilled in me, every moral that I had, um, every worthiness of myself, you know, confidence, all of that. He just belittled it and belittled it. And it looked, it felt so good. So it was so deceiving, right? Because it's like, no, you don't need to do that do what I say, because I have, you know, I'm looking out for you. And it was like, you know, it was just a process. So, you know, when we ask, well, why didn't you just break up with him? Why didn't you leave? People need to understand (laughs) that, you know, those trauma bonds are real. Um, They're very, very, very real. And yeah, that's how the grooming process. And then the bottom, you asked a question about the bottom and the bottom is just a, an individual that has been trafficked. It's a victim of trafficking um, that, probably was with her traffic, his or her trafficker the longest. Um, and by some way or some reason has now gained rank with that trafficker. So maybe if like I'm this right hand person, maybe I don't have to go out as much, or maybe the, I get, you know, the abuse is, is less or, you know, some, some kind of incentive, you know, or you just feel like mm-hmm. this is my life and I'm gonna run with you because 
that trauma bond again. I love you. Let's do this. Right. But typically that bottom is trafficked. And that's the person who we always see prosecuted. That's the person who gets the, uh, the, um, the prostitution charge or, or compelling prostitution. Right. And so, because that, she's, she's there to be the bottom. She's there to take the charge. She's there to be that right-hand person. So it's tough. It's tough when I yeah. see bottoms. When I'm when I'm going out when I go on operations, it's real tough for me to see bottoms going to jail because it could have been me. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then uh, and then uh, Tika, you you talked about earlier that uh, you know you're a survivor as well, but you kind of work with law enforcement. What what, what sort of things do you do in your uh, daily as a case as a caseworker? So um, most of the things that I do is when uh, law enforcement has a victim they contact me. I take care of the, the victim's um, immediate needs, whether it be food, shelter, um, support, therapy, medical, whatever it is that they need, I, I take care of them. The first 72 hours are very, very important uh, with that person, with that survivor, um, because that's when they're the most vulnerable, okay? Trust is not really the first thing that they lead with. And, you know, I'm that first, that first face uh, in that first system of, of trust that they're starting to build with, with someone. Um, and then from there, I'm also uh, at different operations. We have a uh, PDP program, PDP program, prostitution diversion program at our organization. Uh, we also are uh, piloting a beacon program. So it's a pre-filing diversion program. And we're in the police stations when they uh, arrest the, the, the people and we let them know about our organization. And then uh, from there, like I said, we're tethered to the client, whatever needs that they need, we try and help them out with. If some of them wanna go home, wherever home is, we'll take care of that as well. Uh, but mainly my, I believe my purpose is to show them that there is life after trafficking. Um, my, stories, my story started in in the early 90s and um, I was in the life for 11 years and I am 18 years out of the life. And so when I show ahead, them, yeah. that, uh, regardless if they're in the beginning or in their end of their process, I, I let them know there weren't organizations like Journey Out to help them, to help me out when I was in the thick of it, okay? When I was in it, it was pay phones and pagers, okay? There was no internet. There was no, uh, a lot of the resources that were around. I was 12 years old and I was considered a 12 year old prostitute. Where now it is, it is looked at completely different now. Oh yeah. And um, I, I let them know that, you know, number one, it, it took resilience. And I let them know if I can make it, you, you guys can definitely make it, okay? Because I didn't have an understanding of a lot of the things that are going on, a lot of the the, the theories and the psychological games and um, just, just the things that were going on with me before I got trafficked, right? Um, like for me, my story is very different from Kathy's. Um, I was groomed um before i was trafficked okay i come from a generation a generational trauma deep generational trauma um and i was a runaway at the age of 12. and because of the physical you know abuse and sexual abuse that i had endured before i got trafficked the grooming process was very easy 
I was I was ready for it, you know. Mm. Um, my story basically started out as I ran away from the home at the age of three, I mean, at the age of 13, excuse me, 12. And, but I had been a, um, I had been sexually abused since I, my earliest, I probably say was probably about four or five when I can really remember. I um, mean, it escalated throughout the years until I was the age of 10 and then it reaches, it reached its peak, right, of sexual assault. Um, and then I, I told my family members at the age of 12, um, I was not believed. And of course, you know, if a child is not being believed that someone had violated you in the worst way, of course, that made you feel like no one really cares about you. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're saying that someone hurt you in the most, most personal way possible. And it, and, and people in your family are saying that it's not true. And I left home. Like I said, um, about two or three times at the age of 12. And uh, I'm from an area called the jungles in South Central Los Angeles. And there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of violence that go on. It's it's basically, it's a, it, it's a project that looks nicer than, than most projects in Los Angeles. I, I would say that. Um, and you know, I was walking around when I was, uh, when I ran away from home in the same area that I was living in, you know, 12 year old logic. And it started to rain and there was a man who pulled up on the side. Now we always talk about stranger danger, right? Stranger danger is usually some creepy guy. And, you know, and that's what, like, like Kathy said, some white van pulling up with some guy with some bad teeth, you know, window. Looking gross and disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So this is so this is what I was trying to stay away from, but there was this guy with this nice smile, you know, with this nice car, and he was asking me, "Are you okay?" Right. So this is this is this couldn't be a bad person, right? This has to be someone who is here to help me and wants to make sure that I'm okay, you know. So I I accepted his invitation to come and sit in the car with him. We talked for a short period of time, and then he introduced me to marijuana, to weed, right? And my family has done all kinds of drugs. You know, I had, my father was on, was on crack. You know, I had uncles that were alcoholics. You know, I had, um, I had a couple cousins and uncles that smoke weed. And so I was thinking like the, the lesser of the evils would be weed. Right. So it's just like some giggles, some munchies, like, oh, okay, that's, that's not too bad. I could try that. Right. And not knowing that he laced it. And I, I woke up in a strange place. I was tied up. I was, you know, being beaten and I was being raped by, by many different men. So that was my experience um, being, being trafficked. That was like my first experience. Um, I was with that man. I probably say, it seemed like an eternity, but in reality, it was probably about two weeks, two or three weeks. And when I was found by the owner or the landlord or whoever, you know, I was, I wasn't tied up at the time. Right. So, you know, uh, like Kathleen, there's a, there's a meme on, on Facebook that I think about. Right. And I wish I would have it here with me as well. Um, but there's a, a horse that is tied up by like a little plastic lawn chair. Like the horse is, is strong enough to just walk away with, with the chair. You know, it's, it's, it's not held down, but the mentality 
made it seem like I can't go anywhere. I have to stay. I could have yeah. opened the door and walked out because the guy was gone for like maybe a, a day. And I could have just opened two doors and been out of there, right? But I was I was in such bad shape and mentally as well as physically, I, I, I couldn't do that. So when the landlord or whoever the guy was opened the door, he asked me like, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And I was just like, well, I can't, I'm not telling you anything until you get me out of here. And out of here to where was, was there was nothing, there was no game plan. But um, like I said, I was in such bad shape. I literally had to crawl out of, out of the place and crawl into his, his door um, of his uh, inside of his car. And he drove around until nightfall and he stopped at a strip mall where there was a laundromat. And there was a lady there, um, a little Hispanic lady who saw me. And I was wearing a dingy, bloody, dirty t-shirt at the time. And she got me some clothes from that people left at the laundromat. You know, she bought me some changlas from the, from the corner store so I can have some shoes on my feet. And, you know, she bought me some food. And, a lot of people would think that 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 it ended there, but it didn't. Instead of me wanting to go home where it would have been, I would have been gotten yelled at, would have got a whooping, you know, I would have been punished for being out, not knowing everything that I went through. I decided just to stay out in the streets. You know, I I was in and out of the life, like I said, for 11 years. Um, six of those years were under a pimp. Um, I was very, I, I had no loyalty. I had no Romeo pimp. There was no love affair. I, I knew what the, their, um, their purpose was in my life. I had probably about 10 to 15 different pimps in, in a matter of like 10, uh, six years. Um, as soon as I got beaten or when I was the last girl standing, um, I left because I didn't want to be a bottom. I don't want that much responsibility. And um, I, I didn't want the all the money to have to come from me right and and so uh it was it was survival at a certain point for me um i knew i was under age and i couldn't get an apartment i couldn't get a hotel room there weren't any like youth shelters that they are now or the ones that i i wasn't aware of at the time um to to seek like some type of refuge and then i was also addicted to the life you know i wasn't on any drugs but i was addicted to that lifestyle um i had abandonment issues from my father i had um i had an addiction to sex because i was tampered with at a, such a young age and i was over sexualized you know for so long um my life was just it was just it was just a mess you know i had to um, when I wanted to get away from pimps, what I would do is I would steal in a store in plain sight, like, hi, I have this. I'm putting it in my purse, yeah. you know, so I can get arrested so I can go to juvenile hall and I could rest. You know, it was it. Hmm. That was my cycle. I was constantly getting arrested for petty thefts. Um, as sad as it was, um, law enforcement at that time was not trauma informed. Right. Um, I was considered a hoe in their, in their eyes. They were talk mess to me, you know, as they drove by, um, 
the the staff at juvenile hall you know sometimes weren't they weren't as pleasant either if they knew that i was you know often working in those in those places you know every it's like every person that was there to to help me and not say every person but in every sector of of you know support and help i i did not get that um and like i said in the 90s it was a very different thing you know this was right after the the riots in 92 when i first got trafficked right and then <clears throat> At 18, um, I had met a notorious pimp, uh, and I had I got the flu, and plus, you know, pimps don't care about that little lady time that we all have once a month, you know. And I had to work, and he wanted me to go to work, and I told him I I can't, I couldn't even hold down water. It was my, you know, I I probably had pneumonia. I don't know. It was really bad. And um, him and his friends beat me unconscious. I was found in an alley, uh, naked and badly beaten and was taken into the hospital as a Jane Doe. And um, that was the first time I ever told someone about what happened to me and told them my story. And it's this beautiful little Jamaican woman um, who stayed with me even when she was off work. Um, she still came into the hospital to, to check up on me and to make sure that I was okay. Um, she went against a lot of codes and conduct in the hospital by telling me to tell them that I either don't remember my name or to give them a fictitious name because she knew if that guy found me, he was going to kill me um, because that was his intention on when he beat me so badly, you know, that night. And so um, when I got better, I uh, she gave me some clothing. She bought me some clothes and gave me like a trash bag of hygiene items and um, gave me $200 and, and told me to, to leave the state or I was going to get killed. And um, that $200 only got me so far. I started to travel around the US to spots that I've been to before, um, working the tracks. And I was working with gauze, band-aids, you know, staples and, and, and stitches, you know. And it, it wasn't until I went to Chicago, of all places, Chicago, to feel safe. Like, what? Anyway, um, <laughs> I ended up in Chicago. I ended up in Chicago and, you know, I continued to work. I was starting to work strip clubs and, you know, there were, um, they had these like lock, lockdown, um, like parties and where women could like, you know, it, it was more of a safe place for women to conduct those type of, you know, in, in that type of industry. And I started to, to work there. And, you know, long story short, I, I met a man with three incredible kids. And um, he just reminded me, like, I have a daughter. And I, I need a positive role model for, for her if you want to be a part of my life. And because of the love of those kids, you know, he was a bonus. Not the, the kids weren't a bonus. He was the bonus, you know, um, because of those kids. Um, that is, that was my why of, of getting out of the life. So that is wow. that's my story wow. in a nutshell. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you had mentioned also, um, and it's something that I know on our end out here, really trying to attack perception and um, 
policy in regards to victims, in regards to those that are in the life, in regards to viewpoints and things like that. Um, Ms. Young, how have, what are some things that your agency and your organization has done to begin to shift the paradigm on how we treat those who are trapped in human trafficking or those we encounter, um, even just in the life, and that maybe, maybe it hasn't gotten to the legal terminology or legal terms of that. What are some of the things that you all are implementing um, to help with law enforcement and even in the education and in the medical field? Um, in terms of education? So we do a lot of education on human trafficking, prevention, and things like that. But, you know, just like Kathy and Tika said, um, even looking at operations that are still going on right now, you'll see law enforcement arrested 50 people, but most of those are victims. So at our, our office, we, we don't do that. Um, we're victim-centered. We do trauma-informed interviewing, as well as, you know, on our operations, when we do in-call or out-call operations, our whole goal of those operations is just to help and find the resources for our victims. Um, I think that's that's a big step. Um, we do have some, like, tough times just because the resources uh, that are offered and that people um, are getting sometimes aren't what they need. Um, some of our human trafficking resources, you know, they say they have to be identified as human trafficking, but you know, as well as anyone else, it's hard to talk about human trafficking, especially with law enforcement agents who know really nothing about that actual life, you know, what that actual person goes through. You know, they see a uniform or they see an authority figure that's standing there and they think, you know, you're just here to arrest me. There's been so many times in all of our operations that we've taken a victim, they don't want to speak to us. And when I get an actual victim in, like, you know, the first thing I tell them, like, you're not under arrest. You know, if there's someone controlling you, if you're independent, you know, what I just want to get you is the actual resources. Now there's someone controlling you, then we can actually get to that step where you're actually going to talk to us and trust us enough to tell us that. But I mean, even talking to a regular adult about sex is... Is hard, you know, now you're trying to talk to someone else about the acts that they, you know, have done or haven't done, you know, you think they really want to talk to you about that, you know, so, right, I think yep. what we do in our office, just like I said, is a victim centered approach, everything is about that victim, you know, so even on our operations, when a victim comes in, if there's someone who brings them there, then that's who we put all of our efforts in to talk to, because you're bringing this person here, you know what you're bringing them here for. You know, is it their is it their actual pimp that's in the car that's actually you know bringing them here? Um, so we see a lot of that, and those are the people that we try to get all the information from. Um, the other thing that we try to do is, you know, we we talk to the victims and see if we can actually get like their phone and see if if they're not going to tell us. Maybe you know they can give us their phone. We can look through it, see if the person who's calling them multiple multiple times. And you know, I don't I don't agree with exactly like how our legal system is set up like for domestic violence cases the state can prosecute those cases <clears throat> but for our human trafficking cases you're going to have the victim sit there and go in front of their trafficker and say yep it was him or her or whatever you know you're going to actually have them sit there and say that or you're going to put them on stand and have the defense attorney wreck their entire personal life that they they you know went through and expect them to talk you know and mm -hmm. get that actual trafficker put away 
So it's, it's hard. So I think finding resources is the, our best option at first, finding them housing, getting them back on their feet, you know, not actually putting them in jail. And I mean, we've seen a, a lot of that, like where the girls go to jail, they're off the street for a day. And then you have that pimp grabbing another person off the street or, you know, grooming another person in their place. So it's just, it's not stopping the cycle. So I think getting the resources, having them actually open up and actually speak to us, then we can actually get that actual trafficker away and away from other people, you know, to and not re-victimize them. That's that's my um, idea of, you know, the resources that we should get sometimes. Yeah. So, You know, following up on that, following up on that, you know, we got uh, laws everywhere where, you know, things aren't being prosecuted like they used to, the penalties aren't the same like they used to. How's human trafficking? Is, are, are there penalties uh, really deterring traffickers from engaging in this? I think with um, stricter and stiffer penalties and actually getting that person off the street, then yes. Um, but if law enforcement you know, promises people, promises these girls, promises these guys, all the stuff they can do and they don't follow through, then there's no case because we didn't follow through on our end. So you don't have that victim there to speak to. So then I don't think it would really deter anyone, you know, because they're not going to give up that trafficker, especially if we can't keep our side of the, the bargain, you know, right. getting them resources, getting them help. So I think there are stricter penalties, but I think the stricter penalties are, in, in, well, in the state of New Mexico are more on the federal side than on our state side. We are trying to pass through legislation and everything like that and getting st uh, stricter penalties. But right now I, I don't believe they're that strict. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys feel that, because we often go after the traffickers, um, but the demand side has very minimal penalties. I find that a lot of times our victims are more penalized than the sex buyers themselves. Do you all think that stiffer penalties and more intense penalties outside of what they call John school? And for those that don't know, it's basically a school where they go and say, don't uh, get involved in prostitution because you could get a disease and do some community service hours, not the fact that they are victimizing or, you know, creating issues or things like that. Do you think that stricter penalties for sex buyers would be a better deterrent in addition to the prosecution of traffickers? Yes. Yeah, I, I totally think, agree with I that. I think like, so. On, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, on our side, I'm sorry, on our side, arresting the, um, the John, it's, it's a misdemeanor. Like, that's all it is on our, in, on our state. You know, it's a, it's a traffic citation. Um, so I think stricter penalties for our Johns would be great. Um, and I'll, like what our office does, we actually, we do an operation like that. We'll post their faces on the news and say, these are the buyers that are buying sex out there. And these are your, your husbands and your teachers and, you know, could be anyone out there that's buying yes. sex. And we put them on the news and say, here you go. These are the people that were caught in this operation, you know? Yeah. Those are the sort of things that we do for, you know, uh, uh, molesters, you know, child molesters. If we, if we did the same sort of thing for sex buyers, you know, that would kind of deter that as well. Maybe even a database like they do with uh, with molesters as well. You know, Megas Law websites. You know, kind of put. You know, these are the ones that are in your neighborhood that are uh, engaging in this. Maybe that'll uh, help with the deterrent as well. Um, I know. Oh, I yeah. 
Oh, real, real quick, uh, let me just I, read I this just... comment from uh, YouTube real quick. Uh, VV on YouTube says, uh, Tika, your story is heartbreaking. Thank you for sharing. And the work you do with Journey Out Organization, definitely eye-opening. Thank you. Thank you for Thank that you, comment. Um, wh what I was going to say is it's, it's the people that are usually getting caught for buying sex are the low-hanging fruit, right? There are some people that, um, and and I, I really wouldn't want to put the penalty of um, of 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 um, ha having them register as a sex offender unless they're buying children, um, because I understand that there are a lot of young guys that do this because they're socially awkward or whatever the case may be, and there are some creepy guys, yes, but I do I the same thing the way that they group in. Um, like prostitution and sex work and all those things, I wouldn't want those people to be grouped all in the same same way as well, okay? Um, the guys that are, most of my clients that I had that were, that wanted to belittle me and wanted to beat me, those are not the guys that you guys are gonna catch. You're, you're, you're not gonna catch those guys um, because these guys are men in power, okay? So the mm -hmm. ones that you're catching are the ones that um, that are just out for for a good time and, and don't really have any true malicious intent. Their moral compass may be wrong and off, but um, you know there there is there is a lot of different dynamics that go along with them. I am not I am not pro sex work in any in any way, but I I wouldn't want someone to have to suffer a lifetime for for an idea um, of of just having some fun, right? They don't know the, the, the dynamics. The class, as far as like John school, should be more intense. They should be longer. They should have to pay more fees because there's a lot of monies that are needed to help the clients that that we are uh, that we are helping. Um, hitting them in their pockets, I think, is much much more um, oh, yeah. uh, doable and much more helpful in this in this scheme of things, right? Because let's let's be real, we're black people. Most black people, most black girls are not looked at as victims, okay? Most of the services that are out there, they are not for, you know, people that look like me, right? Most of them are for people that look like someone else, someone who looks a little softer, someone who speaks a little, you, you know, speaks well, you know, someone who is faith-based. That is not, you know, 50% not even 50 percent 60 percent of the of the population that that i'm touching you know from from day to day um so i just think that um having more in-depth um um like penalty for johns is is uh is needed but i i think that they need to help fight with the financial need um, for a lot of our uh, survivor sisters and in, in the victims of sex trafficking, personally. Yeah, yeah. What are, what are your I two agree. organizations, Kathy and, and Tika, what are your two organizations doing uh, directly with victims or survivors of sex trafficking and human trafficking? Um, we can start with you, Kathy. So 1211 Partners um, literally exists to fill in one of the gaps that um, was identified here in specifically in Texas, right? Um, so we realize that a lot of, there are so many services and comprehensive residential services and, and great, great things, great places, 
but as Tika pointed out, they're not for everyone. It just, everyone doesn't fit in there. And so um, we created this organization literally for those who don't fit into regular programs. Also those who have completed programs. I, I realized that, you know, I was getting a lot of calls. I've been mentoring forever, right? But a lot, I realized that a lot of my mentees were calling um, two years after they've graduated from programs, relapsed, right? And so they're like back into the same place or at risk of being re-exploited. And I just was like, okay, well, what's happening? Like spending thousands and thousands, if not millions and millions of dollars for restorative care and restorative care programs, but yet individuals are not, not all, not every individual is thriving. That's an issue. Um, So 1211 Partners comes in to help people that choose not to go to programs because programs are not for everyone who have tried programs, but it didn't work for them. And then for those individuals who have completed programs, but still need that extra support, Um, you know, they go to these programs and I, like I said, I I love the programs, but they go to these programs and um, they learn all these life skills and how to cope with your trauma and how to identify triggers and stuff like that. But then after they graduate, it's like, okay, great, go be great. You know, go take over the world. You're going to be awesome. But no one's showing them how to apply these skills. No one's walking with them to in their journey to like, what is it going to look like living by myself? What is it going to look like actually going to school by myself? Like, what is it going to look like raising these kids by myself? Because I now I no longer have the crutch of a program or, you know, a safe home to like hold me up. And so um, that's what 1211 Partners is. It's literally to walk alongside overcomers who uh, don't fit in programs and who have completed restorative care programs, but still need the extra support. We do that through mentorship, career path development, and housing referrals, practical things. You need a job. Um, You know, a lot of these programs are like, you just, you learn how to write a resume and you do all these things and get all these skills and go to get some training and you're going to be great. You can get this job. But what is that job? What does that job look like for me if I have a felony? What does that job look like mm-hmm. for me if I have all these things on my record? What if what if I don't have um, what if I have a lack in education and and all these things? Right. So that those things that we try to put in programs don't work for everyone. We got to step out right. and say, OK, practically, how can we do this and how can you thrive in freedom, not just graduate and work it? You know, no offense to anyone that is in this, in this job, but like not just graduate and be a cashier for the rest of my life. No, I really want to like. Yeah develop some skills and move on. So that's why we exist, 1211 Partners, really just partnering, partnering with um, overcomers of trafficking. Yeah. yeah. Yay! I'm so happy to hear that. That's super huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Journey Out, Tika? Oh, so Journey Out, uh, we meet them where they are. Whatever stage they are in that, in, in their journey, that's where we're going to be at. We, cele- we celebrate every milestone, whether it is catching one less date, um, um, going out one last night, you know, one less night than usual. Um, it, it could be um, getting out and finding a job being, you know, at McDonald's, you know, or it could be going back to school, getting their GED. Um, it could be that they finished reading a book. You know, it it could be whatever stage in their life that they are in. That's where that's where we meet them at. Like I said, we have the prostitution diversion program through the city attorney's office, um, and we also have the pre diversion program that we're um, that we're piloting right now. And then we also have the um, uh, we have 
uh, hygiene, uh, we have different different partners that we work with. Um, housing has been the, 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 the hardest and toughest part um, because especially during COVID right now, a lot of the emergency shelters and the DV shelters are full. And then that is the issue as well. There aren't very many HT um, specific housing programs right and the ones that are available um they they either have a limited amount of space or the rules are so tough and so strict it's really hard for someone to come out of the life going into emergency shelter for 90 days and you know breaking themselves of certain habits or just not living a what is normal but a normal life to where they have responsibilities and rules in a household, right? And then you also have, um, we have different groups. Our groups, some of the groups that we have are, you know, for substance abuse, for mental health, or just support. Um, I myself, I believe that financial literacy is very, very important. And But I do financial literacy my way, okay? I had a sixth grade, a sixth grade education. Um, I got my GED at 35 years old. And, you know, but I understood money and business and finance finances at a very young age because I did a lot of the reading myself myself. Um, I've always been a sort of a, a bookworm and where uh, being of service is my purpose, but um, business has always been my passion, right? And so I let these ladies know, look, if you can sell a little strange for a little bit of change, you are already a businesswoman, honey, okay? There is nothing that you can't do in the world of business. And so I make sure that I let them understand what business is and what it looks like. Um, coming from someone who had to you know, I had a felony, you know, I have a felony that I caught with my, my pimp um, at the age of 18. And I had to, you know, in trying to find employment, I couldn't come through the front door. I had to come through the side window. So I had to show when, women how that looked, right? And then I got over, out of my relationship and left from Chicago and came back to California. I was homeless, right? And I was living on Santa Monica by Santa Monica Pier for nine months. And I had to let them know what that looked like. This is going to take some sacrifice, honey. If you really want it, this is what you're going to have to do, right? And I and I I read them through everything. Look, I had to learn how to do hair care by having you know um, uh, olive oil and coconut oil, and you know I didn't want to go back to life. If you don't want to go back to the life, don't. It's going to be hard. You know, this process is not going to be easy for you. And then we have my, our great survivor sisters and our great staff here that comes from all different walks of life, right? And we have people that have their master's degree, that have their doctorate, you know, that are just starting out in college. And so we have, we have a lot of, you know, role models here that can show them different stages of life or different, um, different ways of doing things, right? And so we, we are not just an organization that is by, by the book, you know, or a curriculum of how to do things. We also put our, our personal lives into these, these people that come through our, our doors, right? We let them know about how we got to do things. And we also are transparent in some of the struggles that we've had in life. So that we let them know, look, we're not different than you. Some of us are just as screwed up as you, you, y'all, you know, think that y'all are. 
you know, therapy is not there to fix you. Therapy is there to help you cope with things in life, right? And you you just, it's, it's okay. Because a lot of our brown and black sisters, they don't, they never thought of, of therapy as a, um, as a way of, of helping them because it's, you know, especially in my generation, that's what white people do when they're crazy. You know what yeah. I mean? You know, so we, we, we have to be transparent about what we do and who we are in order to get them where we are. We are a one-stop shop. Um, we don't have everything, but we try our hardest to get whatever resources um, that are needed to, to, to fit um, the, the needs of, you know, our, our sisters, our LBGTQ plus sisters and brothers and our, you know, uh, anyone who, who might need us. So in a nutshell, yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. 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 I wanted to touch on that real quick, uh, with the three of you. Um, the three of you are all female and Tika and, and Kathy, you two are female that were involved in the life, but it's not just with, uh, with females. Is that correct? I mean, we've got all ages, all sexes, all all walks of life that are involved in this. Can can you talk on any other victims that you came across in your life uh, while you were in that lifestyle that were you know that were males that were caught up in it um, that were young, just like you that were caught up in it as well. Well, I have also seen there's has been an uptick of um, of transgender women that are they've always been victimized but they're starting to realize that they are victims as well mm. um they some some of them are just seeing it as well these are the only options that we have um and by labeling as survival sex make it seem like it's okay um and there takes away from their victimization in some way when you you know classify it as survival sex um but i have I am actually working on uh, working with a, a client who is probably one of the first clients that is going against her pimp um, in LA County, which is, is is amazing and a beautiful thing to see. Not the situation, but just that you know um, the systems are taking her very seriously. You know, as an LBGTQ plus, you know, um, a part of that community. Um, but there are um, there have been a few men that are understanding that uh, just because this person calls you a family member, right? And said that this is for the betterment of our family and no one will understand outside of the LBGTQ plus community what they go through, right? A lot of them are understanding that, you know, that force, that force fraud or coercion piece, it, it goes along with what, what's going on in their community as well. And then there's, there's have been children. I think one of the partner agencies that we work with, I believe that they have a, a 10 year old um, that was um, that was recovered. I think she was recovered at the age of seven and I believe she's 10 years old now. And wow. um, there have been children like all around, you know, the world, but also in the US in our very own backyards, you know, as young as three that I have heard of um, specifically um, that are being trafficked. And, and it seems like a lot of young boys um, are under the radar for trafficking um, and right. that are in these trafficking rings that a lot of people are not aware of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one thing I would say, um, it, sex trafficking does not discriminate, right? Um, and it doesn't necessarily target 
people, it targets vulnerabilities. So if we've ever been vulnerable at any point in your life, you were at risk or could have been at risk if you're not aware of it for, to be trafficked. Um, and so I think that's one of the misconceptions that I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, males, they're an underserved, underserved population in this because a lot of them don't know how to speak out about it, right? We're just starting to get our females to, to, to understand what this is, let alone our males. And so um, that's one thing that it doesn't discriminate. Yes, there are boys. Yes, there are um, girls. Yes, there are men. And yes, there are women that yes. have been trafficked. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, producer Liz, if you can pull up that uh, comment that we had here just a second ago. Um, got a VVV again on, on YouTube saying, how can we pr protect our children or can we at all? Um, I think we absolutely the, can the awareness. Yes. Everybody, everybody agrees with that. Everybody agrees with that. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Awareness. <laughs> awareness is, is a huge piece. Being aware and understanding the facts, understanding the myth and the misconceptions. And if you can educate yourself to where you can educate other people, that is a huge step right there. Right. And then if you see something, say something there, are, you know, there are hotlines, the human trafficking awareness hotline, um, you, you know, um, be careful. Okay. I got to put this out there. Be careful. Do not put yourself in a situation. Okay. Trying to, you know, trying to help a situation, but get as many identifying information as you possibly can. If it's a vehicle, what color, what make, model, driver's license, if it's a person, if there's any scars, any, you know, any tattoos or anything like that. Um, or if you can, a description of the person, like, you know, if you can sneak a picture or a video in, that's great, but be careful. Do not put yourself at, at an immediate danger, but, um, as much information that you can remember and that you can, um, um, you can, you know, think about the, the better and, you know, just call in. If you see something, say something, please. See something, say something. Absolutely. Yeah. So, prevention uh, is, um. Go ahead, go ahead, Kathy. Prevention is prevention is the is is the first thing, um, right? But we have to in our fans start talking about this stuff. Um, it is uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's even hard to talk about sex. I don't know what is um, a good age for every individual, right? It's going to be different. But as soon as you can, you can start talking about um, boundaries and you know personal boundaries and and touch and stuff like that. As as young as like toddler age, you just start letting them know how to protect their bodies, how to how to tell mommy, how to tell daddy, how to tell a trusted person that something is happening. Um, and then we need to start to number two, believing our children. I don't care what it is call me crazy, but if my daughter tells me anything, I'm there. Like what is happening? We need to investigate this until, you know, innocent until proven otherwise. Right. Like we, you need to start believing our children. Um, and then having, like I said, having these conversations, you start with your family first, self-awareness, number one, number two, your family, number three, your community. And that's how we're going to prevent our kids from getting caught up social media. I call that like the traffickers hunting ground. They all over social media yeah. and our kids are all over social media, posting everything about their day, everything about their little feelings and everything. Right. So we need to be more proactive as parents and community members and, and teachers and people that, you know, as stakeholders, like we need to be um, responsible for our children. And so get to know, get to know about this yourself. Number one, number two, tell your family, number three, tell your community, number four, that's how we're going to protect our children. You know, and I, I agree with that as well, because 
there's a lot of parents that they don't know what their kids are doing. And I'm kind of concerned with that. I'm like, your daughter's 11 and they're on TikTok. You don't know exactly what they're doing, why they're posting. I'm like, I think the actual age to be on TikTok is 13 or 14, but you haven't checked your child's phone because, oh, well, you know, it's an invasion of privacy. Like, but these, this is where the traffickers are and this is how they're grooming our children out there. Yes. So we need to actually know what they're doing. <laughs> right. I'm like, yeah. Tika, like, uh, you ain't got no privacy in my house. No. <laughs> You what is that? House and I'm still getting the key. <laughs> what do you know? Like I, I'm coming in. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a there's this big thing that you know the, the these kids got rights that we didn't have when we were kids, and that's why mm. it blows my mind. They're like, you know, when when certain laws were passed, you know, about children's, you know, protecting their rights, and I'm like. It, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, a lot yeah. of it right. is really ridiculous, and yeah. so it, you know, it makes it hard. <laughs> yeah, it makes it hard for a lot of parents. And but I say, look, if you pay that bill, you oh, can do no whatever doubt. you want. You paying the roof, the the lights, the all that stuff. You can do whatever. You, look, what you doing? Where you at? I'm no look, Yes, I have. Yes, I have a GPS on your phone. Yes, I'm going right. to ask you for your phone. Don't yes. you lock? Don't you lock that phone up? Yeah. You crazy? Yep. You know, and, 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 I, I, and they just they don't realize that. that we're doing it for their for their own good. They just don't realize that yes. they do when they become our age. But when they're stuck in it at, you know, as a teenager, they don't realize that. So, you know, we're not here to be their friends. We're here to be their parents. So it is what it I is. I think parents are younger these days. Have too. A, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Have parents are younger these days with your kids at the same time. Yeah. Think it, you think parents are younger these days, huh? Yeah, parents are younger these days yeah, and so yeah. you see you see the mom and the child with nails like out to here both the same you don't know who the mom is and who the <laughs> child is because everybody's like you know you're just you know yeah. dressed the same way and stuff like that and so i think culturally just we need to understand that this thing is real um it, trafficking doesn't exist culturally to some especially to the younger generation it's like oh okay that ain't gonna happen to me you know what i mean um mm -hmm. prostitution the pimp the pimp hole culture they may get, but not like trafficking. Come on now. Like my daughter's not going to be trafficked is, is, is cool. So it's okay for her to be on TikTok with itty bitty shorts and long, long, long nails and doing pucky lips and stuff like that at 11 years old. Right. Because it's cute. Right. But we need to we need to educate our parents, our younger parents, especially just to make sure that we're protecting um, those babies as well. Right. Right. We got to let and mom know. First, first of all, we got to let mom know. It ain't cute when she's doing it. So let alone when, when daughter doing it. So <laughs> I was, I was going to say the exact same yeah. thing. A lot of these parents need to fix their own stuff, mm -hmm. right. And their own traumas before they can go and tell their children anything. So yeah, yeah, I exactly. definitely believe yeah. in that. I, I yeah, want to piggyback too. on oh, oh, well, on what you guys were saying also earlier about, um, stranger danger myths and conceptions like, Oh, stranger danger and we're, we're, we're doing these things that really aren't fruitful when more than likely our kids are going to be victimized by those who they know. It's gonna be a family, it's gonna be someone who has, who's in the circle of trust, whether it's a neighborhood friend or a neighborhood parent or someone else. And then also when you're educating your kids, stay away from terms like good touch, bad touch, because their bodies are still physically going to respond. And so if it felt good to me, even though I know I wasn't supposed to be doing this, 
then this must make me a bad person also. So I think really educating and being intentional on the nuances of words as opposed to these are the boundaries. And if someone crosses this boundary, you should talk to me or it's okay to tell me if this is a safe place. Or even if you're an educator, it's okay, this is a safe place and not leave it to those those nuances of good and bad and or right or mm -hmm. wrong because then they're afraid because now I liked what happened to my body because I'm not really sure what happened. And so I must be the bad person and I'm gonna get in trouble. And so they're afraid yeah. to tell also. Yeah, yeah, fortunately. Yeah. So. so real quick, uh, before we get out of here, ladies, what, what can we as law enforcement do better in this fight against human trafficking? Mm -hmm. we'll, st we'll start with uh, Kathy Antica and then uh, Deanna, you can round that out. What, what can we do better in law enforcement? This is a whole nother show. I'll let Tika go first. Though. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. Oh. Hey, um, hey, we're here, we're so, here for it. So go ahead, go ahead. Um, since I have been working uh, very closely with, 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 uh, with the uh, Vice uh, Human Trafficking Task Force in, in LA County, um, well, first of all, our, our former ED is a retired Sergeant of LAPD. Um, her name is um, Dr. Powell. She was Sergeant Payne when she was uh, working with us. And, um, she she really bridged in the gap between law enforcement um, and um, and um, service providers as well as you know with survivors as well. Um, she gave me a platform to where I could go in and and talk to them and train them um, on certain things that are outside of you know what is in their normal trainings. And then, um, like I said, I have been working very closely, especially with the um, the West Bureau, um, West Bureau for Human Trafficking Task Force, um, and I have seen, you know, um, officers and sergeants come and go. Um, I can see them being a little, little cold towards um, towards the victims or the detainees when they first came in. Um, but then you start to see that shell break away because they understand that these are not just people that are engaging in in, in an illegal um, 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 thing. You know, they are actual people as well, um, and they start to learn about them, their stories, and they start asking asking me questions about um, about you know certain ways of the way that they're thinking and. Um, I think that a lot of officers, well, everyone doesn't get a chance to be a, a part of VICE, and I'm understanding of that. But there should be a, a time where, you know, they should be able to work with organizations because safety and security is something that we, we definitely need um, for our survivors when they're going to court and or when you know they're being transported from from different places you know to pick up items from hotel rooms you know those patrol officers should be should be working with nonprofits as well for a short spend you know a bit of time to just kind of let them see the different scopes of uh you know these people that they're seeing as you know criminals or what have you then a lot of the officers do not come from the same area Right, they don't come from the same um, 
cities, you know, or they've never lived in the type of, you know, areas that we've lived in. Um, so cultural competence, it, it needs to be tightened up just a tad bit more um, so they can understand the population that they're working with. Um, like I, I tell officers all the time, I grew up in the jungles and I did not know as a child that this is a high crime area. I didn't know what that was. This is my normal, right? So when I, when the police officer pulls over and, you know, while I'm in like elementary school or junior high school and puts my friends up against the wall, you know, this is, this is what, this is what I'm thinking of law enforcement in the very beginning. Right. This is the this is the, you know, the introduction to law enforcement for me, not understanding that this is a high crime area and someone, you know, some a lot of people have drugs and guns in this area. I don't understand that as a child, you know, they need to understand the the whole idea, you know, or the whole mentality. My grandmother lived in an area, Jim, during Jim Crow, where law enforcement wasn't too kind to them. Right. So my grandmother always instilled fear in us when it came to law enforcement. And she had a, a, a level of of no respect for law enforcement because of the things that she encountered in her lifetime. And that's why I say um, cultural competence. It's very, very important. You have to understand why people, you know, generationally have a dislike for law enforcement, not because you have a badge. No, there's a lot of history that goes along behind that. Right. And I think that there needs to be more, the stuff that they have in these suburban cities, you know, uh, and, you know, as far as meeting, meeting the, the captain or the chief and, you know, them doing community projects in, in the area. Um, I think the areas that need the most help need to be helped by the people that are also there to protect them as well. Um, if they see us, you know, if they, we see you guys, you know, on an off day or some some overtime, helping to paint a building that is for, um, for you know, uh, after school program or something like that. That that could help out. Let's have some open dialogue with, with the people that are that are supposed to protect who we are. And we don't. We, a lot of us don't see them as them protecting us. They see us. Yeah. We see them as them policing us. So yes. you know that that needs to change. Mm, that's good. Yeah, real good. Kathy, go Absolutely. Ahead. Yeah, so speaking to um, like some, some ways that, that law enforcement can do better, I think that we need to um, really just incorporate better trainings, trauma-informed and victim-centered trainings, starting at police academy, right? And then consistently after that, so that we are making sure that the people that are on the street are um, informed and know who they're... Secondly, I would say that see survivors see victims as people they have a story like one thing that we need to understand is that everyone has a story you never know someone's why for being out there right i don't care how um how much they may be hard on the exterior or whatever um someone they always we always have a story like there's always a story we all have them and so when you encounter sometimes law enforcement is that very first person that you can be that very first point, point of contact for that whole restorative journey if you just make sure that you are um, kind, <laughs> that you're seeing them as a human being, that you are listening, that you are, you know what I mean? Like, even if you, if she is, he or she is engaged in a crime, you can, there's a way that you can do that without like, you know, calling them out of their name or whatever the case may be. I, I just, I, I did a, uh, an operation um, not too long ago 
And this one girl, like she still, she's like the one that keeps bringing me to tears because she was so bad and you can just see it. Um, and so when I began to through to her, like experience, da, 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 um, she laughing at me. I told them I was cool and all I could hear was a lot of law enforcement officers laughing at me. And now they expect me to give them information. I'm confused. Like they were the ones that were just calling me ho. They were the ones that was just calling me, oh, she's skinny, anorexic, like who would buy her, da, 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 da. She heard all of this. She sees all of this, right? One thing that you need to know, like when we're out there, when victims are out there, you have to be vigilant. You have to pay attention to your surroundings. You pay attention to every single detail. So that first point of contact, you have to be mindful that she's watching. He or she, they're watching every move. They're watching if you smirk when you say something. They're trying to figure out where the lie is, right? Um, because yeah, that historical trauma is real, especially on the street, culturally, right? Generational trauma, like I'm already not to trust you. So how are you going to break that barrier? So I think law enforcement needs to come in with, you know, just a, individual blinders, like individual um, lenses on so that they can see who they're dealing with. So they can be mindful of their actions, be mindful of their words, because you may be that that person that will set someone up for the entire future. When I was out in the game, I had one good law enforcement um, encounter and I will never, ever forget it. I don't remember his face, but I remember his eyes because he was the first person that was like, he said, if you, I was on the blade and he was like, you you shouldn't be out here. I, I looked like I shouldn't be, I was green. <laughs> and so he was like, you, you don't belong out here, do you? And I was like, yes, I do. Gave him fake name and all that kind of stuff. And he looked me in the eyes, he pulled me to the side. He said, listen, if you tell me that you're not supposed to be out here, I will help you. And that was the first time I believed a law enforcement because he looked me in my eyes. There was no smirk. There was no sarcasm. There was no nothing. He was like, your mama looking for you. I know your mama looking for you. And so if you're not supposed to be here, tell me your true identity and I will get you out of here. And, but the, you know, I, I was surrounded and stuff like that. So I lied and I took the charge or whatever the case may be, but I never forgot it. And so now even, you know, 16 years out the game, I'm still, I still remember his eyes. And so I have that one good experience with law enforcement that is with me till this day, the rest of my life. If he was the one that, you know, the survivor that I was helping, if he was the one that was saying, oh, you, you, this, you, that, and laughing at me, how do you think my journey would have ended up? I wouldn't be here on this yeah. podcast probably, right? Cause he was the first person that I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Like maybe, maybe there is a chance for me to get out. So you have to make sure that you are seeing the individual for the individual. You never know the story behind it. I don't care how she looks and I don't care if he or she is cussing you out. I don't care if they're combative. You never know their story. So treat them as mm -hmm. such, yeah. treat them as humans. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. We got a problem here? Yeah. Yep. Oh, oh sorry about go. that. Can you hear me? Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Deanna. Deanna, go ahead last. You know, I agree with, with both of these ladies um, for law enforcement. Uh, one thing I will say is if you're on patrol, get out of your car. Go walk the street. Go talk to these people that are out there. You know, go get to know them. The other thing that I would say is, you know, go have like on your day off. We have a um, a shelter here that houses children and adults. Um, two shelters, children and adults are separated. But go out there and have breakfast with them. You know, have lunch with them. Sit there and talk to them so they can actually see you. You know, see us as being human. You know, 
sometimes when we get out of the academy, we think it's just black and white and it's not. It's, you know, we, there's those gray areas and you just have to talk to people like they're people. And, you know, you give them respect, they'll give you respect. That's that's it, you know? If you say you're gonna do something, do it. So when I had one of my one of my girls that I had, I'm like, hey, you know, what do you like to eat? She's like, talkies. I'm like, oh, awesome. Next time I come, I'll bring you talkies. You know what? I bring her talkies. And she, she spoke to us the entire time. But if you come there without anything, after you promised her that, you know, or promised him that you're gonna bring him something, you know, you're not, you're not you know, going with your promises, you know, you're just telling lies every single time. So they just want us to know that they can trust you because they already, I mean, people don't have a trust of law enforcement, but if we can show them that we're human and that we can stand by our promises and the promises that we actually can stand by and, you know, just treat them as human, I think law enforcement will be great. And also, like they said, you know, putting that victim first, trauma-informed interviewing, you know, our victim-centered approaches, and not re-victimizing them. No one wants to talk about trauma out the gate. So get to know them first. Have them get to know you, you know, how, where you come from, you know? And then, you know, tell them your story so they can tell you theirs. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. Good. Love your stories, ladies. All of you love, love your stories here. Uh, we appreciate you for coming on and sharing your stories with us. Um, this is real good. Uh, hope you guys out there like this conversation as well. Um, this will be replayed for, for time and time again on YouTube and Facebook. So make sure you, you, you check it out. We're, we're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. We're on Twitter. Uh, I hope you guys like this conversation because I know I did. I'm sure Elizabeth did as well, right? Absolutely. Thank you yeah. so much for just pouring into us, Dell and I, but even our listeners and stuff and making an impact. So thank you, ladies. Yes, thank you. Love it. We love you. Love you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this episode of Black Blue Live. That, that was some good stuff there. What, what do you think Man, about that one, Liz? The doors of the church are now open. Come on yes. in, come on in. Yes, indeed. So we thank you guys for joining us. Make sure you come back next time. We're going to have some more guests, more fun, more education. My name is Dale. That's Lizzie right there. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Yeah. <laughs> we out. This has been a Nature D presentation.